Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Max Reed, a journalist and screenwriter based in New York. His newsletter guide to the future, Read Max, can be found at http, oh boy, colon forward slash forward slash maxreed.substack.com. It's been a while since I tried to read out an HTTP and I regret it. You should have said hypertext transfer protocol. That would have been a really futuristic way to say it. There's so many things that I wish that I had said, but I didn't. And we're here now <laughs> in the present together instead of the future. And what's done is done. Um, but I'm so pleased that you're here. It's so wonderful to be, you know, spiritually, if not physically together. And uh, I'm really interested to hear uh, some of your thoughts because as I read some of our letters today, I became convinced somehow that there was like an MLM underlying it, but I don't really know that I have a good reason for thinking that. Yeah, yeah, I had the same thought that you did. It, it also did feel like the the first one feels a little bit like the beginning of a sort of like mid-budget script, like a <laughs> YA script that you would like, you can imagine someone sort of making a Pixar face and like saying these first lines in voiceover. I mean, the the actual, the literally the first line of the of the letter is like the first line of a young adult novel or something. Like it's a very like like a like an AI generated young adult novel, basically. Which I feel bad saying because this letter is about someone's serious struggles with self confidence, and we're already like tearing the letter apart. Let's put it this way: that the reason this is the, always the start of an AI novel or Pixar novel, it's a really universal set of feelings, especially in like you know young adulthood, adolescence, like that that age that age bracket. That's true. I, I, I'm glad you said that because I really wanted to stress, I was not saying like, and you can't even write a compelling letter to an advice columnist. I was not trying <laughs> no. to be like too hard. It's just, um, yes, I think like you, I had a sense that I think this letter writer may be in college, but it, it is difficult because when all you have is a sense of like grandiose self-pity, it can <laughs> feel a little demoralizing for someone to say, and you don't even have that. Um, So I do want to walk the line, but maybe instead of like preempting this letter with a lot of hedged bet, I should just read it and then we can get into advising this person. Please. So the subject line, which I did not choose, is loser. Again, that is not me saying that. I'm not good at anything. I'm pathetic at sports, average in studies, an awkward dancer and public speaker, and there's just nothing that is good about me. Nothing special. I'm doing an internship at an organization that hosts events. And we were told to bring in people who will participate in it. We've been doing this for two months, and nobody has registered from my side. I'm working very hard and giving it my best, but everyone I ask is either busy on those dates or not interested. Everyone I call rejects me, and I'm tired of it. I'm one of the senior interns, but I just don't seem to be able to produce any results. All the others are bringing in participants except me. In every meeting, I have the same update to give the leaders about my work. No registrations yet. I'm thinking of quitting the internship, but I cannot because the internship is just two weeks away and it will look very bad on my part. What should I do? What should they do? Besides watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I mean, I think the first thing to do here would be to Google the name of the company in MLM and just, just see what kind of results come up. 
it's not entirely clear from the letter exactly what the job entails, but anything where you're supposed to bring people in to participate is very possibly a multi-level marketing scheme. Uh, and if it is, and like I guarantee you, if this is a suspected or actual MLM, that there will be about you know, 50 threads on Reddit from people who are asking, hey, I just, I'm, my friend is trying to get me to, you know, buy this juice. Is this an MLM? You do a little bit of research and you find that this is probably an MLM. I suggest you just walk away as quickly as possible. The letter writer doesn't mention whether this is for school credit, but it sounds like the only reason they feel that they can't quit is because the event is two weeks away and it will look bad. But I guess my question is, to whom will it look bad? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things about this letter, and 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 this relates to what we were talking about before, about the sort of universal, like a the sense of being kind of worthless in your early twenties. Let's guess as as the as the age of the letter writer is not entirely universal, but it's certainly it's not an uncommon feeling. And I think something that accompanies that sense of worthlessness is often a sense that, like, a kind of paradoxical sense that you are also the total protagonist of reality, and that everybody's eyes are on you and that everybody is thinking about you and how you're failing and how you're a fuck up and how nothing is going right for you. And in fact, and now that I'm in my late 30s and have been in management positions and 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 worked with people of all ages and all levels of fucked upness, I can sort of say with some experience that like I very often nobody has noticed that you have not signed anybody up. And even if they haven't noticed that you haven't signed anybody up, they don't really care. And you know, not to exacerbate any feelings of worthlessness, but like it's very possible you could walk away and nobody nobody would care, nobody would notice, nobody would think worse of you, nobody would even think to, you know, mark you poorly on whatever evaluations are coming up. Um, and I hope I'm saying that in like a freeing way instead of a more punishing way, um, because I recognize that that like it just feeds into that other sense. But I think the, you know, the thing to take away here is it's sort of like, don't allow yourself to get trapped by the sense that there's some kind of expectation or um, sense of pressure that you also have to meet in addition to the actual goals that you're supposed to be getting for this organization. Yeah, I, I think my main sense, I, I don't want to get too stuck on the internship because I realize there's other issues at play here. But my sense letter writer is like either this organization is more relaxed than you are about this particular event, or they're really bad at having interns. Because like if, if they've got an intern who just week after week is like no luck and they're not trying to help you, that's an, like, it, there's not a good company that puts a ton of pressure on interns and just expects them to be good right out of the gate. Like, the reason companies have interns, aside from being able to underpay people, um, is so that they can, like, learn on the job. Like, it is expected that you won't know yet what you're doing. So even being a senior intern, I, I hope you don't feel like, like, all the pressure, all the spotlights on you. Like, they should be helping you do the best job that you possibly can. The only organization I could think of that maybe isn't an MLM that this is was like, you know, events and adventures. They always have like a really chipper lady announcing on the radio. Like, are you sick of swiping through mystery profiles? Events and adventures takes cool, interesting singles on events like Taco Tuesdays. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the, the other thing I thought of was... um a tech-ish conference called uh, Web Summit that happens twice a year that is huge. And they just seem to invite anybody who writes about tech or the web, anybody who is works with or is involved in tech. And I've been asked to sort of participate in one way or another, you know, not as a registrant, as like a panelist or something. And I think there's a couple, there's probably a couple of businesses where it's sort of like, the whole idea is just to cast the widest possible net for possible panelists or speakers at a big three-day conference. And 
without wanting to like get too specific about what whatever is going on with with the letter writer here like it's also possible that that they're that this organization is just using interns specifically to send out 100 emails or whatever with the knowledge that 99 of those emails won't get returned and that's the reason they're having the interns do it which i think is just a, another more specific way of saying exactly what you're saying Tanya, which is this, there's a kind of um it's not simply that they're they're bad at having interns. It's possible, or, or it is a, a way of being bad at having interns, which is to say, kind of using the interns for total grunt work, no feedback, just like pure kind of um, throw it at the wall and see what sticks labor. That unfortunately, the interns who are all real live human beings who have feelings are going, well, oh my God, I'm failing, I'm doing whatever. And the bosses have not communicated like, the failure rate of this task is is enormously high. We don't expect very much out of this. We just want you to try and especially I would say if like if you're going to these meetings week after week and saying you've got nothing and you're not getting any particular kind of feedback or disciplinary action or or however jobs tend to deal with this kind of situation, then it suggests to me that there's like a you can read between the lines to understand that you're not necessarily doing any worse than is expected of you, and you shouldn't think of it as reflecting on your you know on your qualities as a human being uh, let alone you know you shouldn't think of it as reflecting on your qualities as a worker, let alone on your qualities as a human being yes. Yeah, it sounds like if they're not making you do cold calling, that they're having you like canvas your own acquaintance to come to some unspecified event that requires participation, which I just got to say, letter writer, I think almost anybody's going to have a really low success rate. I, I don't obviously like I'm not up to date on all the statistics, but cold calling has a very, very, very low success rate. Um, and so does asking your friends to come to a work event that you have to get people to show up for, which implies it's not like a cool free party. Yeah. Um, so I just don't want you to internalize the difficulty there. And if anything, Max, did you watch the HBO telemarketers documentary? No, but I've heard great things about it. I, I loved that letter writer. I would encourage you to watch that if you get a chance, just because it's like this really remarkable experience of just a bunch of like guys who got hired by an incredibly scammy organization fresh out of high school and over the course of like a decade slowly realized that they were participating in this huge scam. And just because everyone at the company was pretty open about it, they just started filming and asking questions and were able to get like reasonably far in figuring out like who started it and and how they were taking advantage of people. And that's not to say that that's going to happen to you, but just it's like a lovely example of like what people who are doing their best to get out of a really difficult situation can accomplish. And it does yeah. not require like starting from a position of like great power. Um, so I, I would recommend that. But yeah, beyond that, yeah, the the sort of like thing here about like, I'm not good at sports, I'm average at studies, I'm an awkward dancer and public speaker. Those to me feel like things that can feel really important when you're in school and that are just not especially important later in life unless you become a professional dancer or like have friends who love to go dancing every weekend. Like, I just don't really go dancing. There's lots of adults who just never really go dancing. That's not, it doesn't have to be a big part of your life if you don't want it to be. And, and same with sports. Like, obviously sports can be, interesting and exciting and fun for people who enjoy them. But if you're just bad at it and you don't like it, just don't do it. Um, I, I don't want to like dismiss those things, but I just really want to stress like most people's lives don't call for a lot of public speaking. Um, outside of like high school, you've got to take this, you know, debate class to pass. You might never be called upon to speak publicly ever again. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, speaking personally, I am personally pathetic at sports, average in studies, an awkward dancer and an awkward public speaker. And it has not prevented me from having several jobs and also getting fired from several jobs and also just generally having had a life that is filled with both 
bliss and regret and all the things that life that life is usually filled with. Um, you know, there's a kind of a, a sense, uh, you know, early, I, I suppose when you're maybe a little younger, when you're early and when you're assessing yourself in terms of um, like the institutions that you've been passing through, such, including as an intern, as a student, as all these things, to think about the sort of categories of achievement, like sports, studies, public speaking, dancing, all these things. Um, and something that happens as you as you leave these big institutions that structure all of your activities and all your life is you start to see how like sort of formless and and strange the rest of the world is and how many different things you can be good and bad at and how little those categories can have to do with your sense of self-worth, with your ability to build relationships, with your ability to have a career or whatever. You know, I had in high school, I had some close friends who did a telemarketing job. And I remember this really clearly because it was two, two guys who I always thought of as really similar. And one of them was just like an absolute natural, like could not, like, you know, he was like Alec Baldwin and Glenn Curry and Ross. These are kind of burnout dudes that I hung out with. And then you put a phone on him, you told me he had to sell some some vinyl siding to some random people in New Jersey. And he could, you know, he, he'd, he'd end the day with a commission of $1,000 or whatever. I mean, that's not a real figure, but he was doing great. The other one couldn't do any of that. And it had, not only did that, very clearly to me, not reflect at all on their characters as people, um, in part because they were so similar outside of the context of this telemarketing scam that they were working for. But it also has had literally no bearing on the rest of their lives. One of them is a film director. The one who's bad at telemarketing is a film director. And the one who's good at telemarketing is a neuroscientist now, which is like a just complete <laughs> skills that have nothing to do with anything that they're doing. So like, it's very hard when you're in the middle of this kind of feeling and when you're confronting like a weekly deadline that you're not meeting, especially if you're the kind of person who's really eager to like hit numbers and meet those deadlines to step outside of it and recognize that there is a whole, like, this is not the beginning or end of, of a life or a career or any of these things, but reminding yourself as much as you can that this is that like, like internalizing that this is not that meeting or, or failing this particular deadline week in, week out for this event is not is not the end of everything. I would say one other thing. If Danny is right that this is about like trying to get your friends to come to an event and you're failing at that, I think you could be very happy that you have friends who have are able to set clear boundaries and who are able to say to you, this is not something I'm interested in because that's like a real solid friendship and you will be very happy to have friends like that in your future. Assuming that's the case, which maybe it's not. Right. Yeah. So I think in terms of the internship, my real advice is just, I want you to take this less seriously. And then as to the rest of it, you know, some sort of combination of reminding yourself that those particular qualities are not the end all be all of your worth as a person. Um, and then also, I want you to be able to find places where you can talk about that. But I also want you to be careful of that way of thinking. It's tricky because both like if you're feeling incredibly down on yourself and isolated, you want and deserve support. And it's also true that if you want to become close with other people if you want to be friendly and and be invited to things it really helps to at least act as if you value yourself a little bit because if you lead with when you're meeting people i don't think much of myself i don't think i'm very good at anything other people will i think understandably feel like okay you know if you don't think you have much to offer i'm i'm not going to try to dissuade you and so i don't say that to to say like put on a mask always pretend to be wonderful but I would say that find places that you can talk about this that are appropriate, like with longstanding friends, relatives that you might trust, potentially a therapist, 
um, and, and be judicious. Do it some of the time, but not all of the time. Don't lead with that when you're meeting people just because I don't want you to potentially like scare somebody off who might otherwise be interested in getting to know you a little bit better. And I don't want to sound too much like I'm trying to advise you to like navigate like a court full of intrigue and deception of like, you must pretend never to fear the king, lest like you look weak in front of your many enemies who will poison you. But I, I do want to just point out that there are ways in which that sort of like self-talk can just become a really self-fulfilling prophecy. And if other people think that you hate yourself that much, I wish that meant that other people would think, oh my gosh, this person really needs a lot of help. Let's all gather around them. But it does often put people off and, and I don't want to be too Pollyanna-ish here. Does that feel like the right note, Max? I don't want to be like, you'll be alone forever if you ever acknowledge <laughs> vulnerability versus like, yeah. I think it's good. There, I mean, I, let me add, can I add like a little bit of a projection, Please. a bit of projection advice? I mean, speaking as somebody who was pathetic at sports, Harvard Studies, et cetera, is... Um, Self-improvement is real and possible. And like not, not in the sense of like you must like go and do, uh, you know, bench press in the gym and squat in the gym until you're incredibly strong or whatever. But I, something I wish that I had thought about more and known more when I was younger is the extent to which like it's totally cool and fine to go take a dancing class or to go take a public speaking class or an improv class that will help you feel confident in these ways. And these are not necessarily skills that co they come naturally in some cases to some people, but everybody who is good at them has worked on them at some point in their lives. And you're allowed to work on them and you're allowed to go from being really bad to just kind of bad. And that's still an improvement that's worth sort of thinking about and doing. And that, you know, like if you have like me personally, like a fear of, embarrassing yourself by demonstrating how bad you are at something like that you will regret later in life having held back from doing things that you might have liked and that you might have been able to improve yourself at by you know just by putting the work in this is like totally tangential to the actual you know substance of the question but you know this is this is like something i think about all the time i, I have a kid and i think about all the time like something i don't want to pass on to him is that sense that if you're not immediately good at something you shouldn't try and you shouldn't take risks and you shouldn't be willing to like embarrass yourself to improve at things. And when you mention specific things like sports and public speaking and dancing, like these are skills that really genuinely you can put time and effort into and you can learn a lot about yourself and you can make new friends and you can do all these things that can provide you with, uh, I mean, if if not like the skill you're seeking, at least more self-knowledge about why you want to do it, what makes you bad at it, whatever else, you know, if you have the time after the internship is over. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to that end, there's sometimes ways in which this kind of thinking can be sort of like paradoxically self-serving. Like, I don't know that when you meet other people, if they're not good at sports and they're an average student and they're not a great dancer, that you think like, what a piece of shit, they're nothing <laughs> special. And so I think, again, letter writer, I really want to go easy on you because it's clear that you're going through a lot. But like, just sometimes it can be helpful to test these ideas. Like, do I really believe that if someone is like not especially talented, that they're like garbage and worthless? Or is this like a sort of way of having unreasonable standards for me that's like, oh, I should be the king of everything. And if I'm not immediately great at something, it means I'm nothing. Like I can only ever either be special, worthy of other people's times, doing great, or the piece of shit at the center of the universe as the saying goes. And so I would just encourage you like, if you find yourself going from, I'm not very good at softball to, and I am the worst at everything and mean nothing to maybe just interrupt them. Like, is, does this sound realistic? Would I say this about somebody else? 
am I maybe laying it on a little bit too thick here? And it can sometimes be nice to be a little bit like to gently laugh at the part of your brain that is tempted to catastrophize anything that you feel bad about, which is not the same thing as saying like, wow, I suck for feeling bad about myself. (laughs) I don't want to send you down that road. But I think to just, if you find yourself going from like, I I can't really play cricket, which is fine, to there's nothing worthwhile about me. uh, I think that's, that's a flag that's worth interrupting. Yeah, I agree. And one one other thing I'd say is just to the tell the point about the telemarketers documentary is take notes because about what you're doing and where it is because I'm sure it's an interesting job and I'm sure there will be material for something later in your life whether it's just anecdotes for a wedding speech or something but if you become a writer or a filmmaker or whatever I'm sure there's some good there's some good color in there. And before we get into our last question, I do want to ask no pressure, but mm-hmm. if you if you just if you were to recommend like three or four submarine movies for somebody <laughs> who's maybe like interested in getting into the genre, um, what, what what would you want people to consider? Well, the the one I mean, the one that everybody should watch the like classic end of history, late 80s, early 90s, like height of Hollywood, like popular entertainment filmmaking is Hunt for Red October, which has uh, Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan. And uh, Sean Connery is a Russian sub commander who is attempting to defect. And the movie is like a, a really funny, it's sort of the plot is funny because it's a it's not an action movie. There's very little action on it. A gun gets fired once. And it's mostly about Alec Baldwin trying to like communicate to his superiors that they shouldn't destroy this sub, that it's actually a, a, a general trying to defect, a commander trying to defect rather than a um, than like an attack on the U.S. or whatever. And yet it's like, it's incredibly compelling. Like the crisp filmmaking just moves as like a piece of entertainment. It just moves. If you've been, you know, spent all your time watching Marvel movies for the last 15 years, like a lot of us have had to do, like to watch something that like, comes in at two hours and you are engaged at every single moment. It looks fantastic. Everybody's acting their butt off in service of this like ultimately quite silly sort of action faux political plot. Um, it, it's like a, there's a there's like a joke on Twitter. They sort of trad Twitter accounts who are like, you know, my father-in-law is a builder and we saw a cathedral and I asked him how long it took to build. And my father-in-law said, we don't know. We don't know how they built it. And that's how I feel about Hunt for Red October. I feel like it's, <laughs> it's got like cultural knowledge that we've completely lost. Nobody knows how to make a Hunt for Red October again. But that's the one. It is. It is. I didn't see it until like maybe six or seven years ago. And I was just like, this is every bit as good as everybody said it was going to be <laughs> up to and including like who decides to try to do the Russian accents and who doesn't. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. It's because it's I mean, I don't want to spoil it because it's right in the beginning of the movie, but Sean Connery does a Russian accent for about 10 minutes. And it I, I don't think they filmed it in sequence, but it almost feels like they did. And Sean Connery did a day of Russian. He was like, you know what, guys, I'm not I'm not going to bother. We're sticking with Scottish on this one. We're not going any, any, any further. It feels like, I don't know, I think we had in some ways slightly different childhoods, but it feels like if you're ever as a young kid, you decide to like fake an ailment for attention and then you get tired of it. It's like faking you lost your voice because someone recently actually lost their voice and you thought that was kind of interesting (laughs) and realizing pretty early on that it sucks and you're bored. Um, But finding a way to like slowly bring your voice back throughout the day so that nobody says, wait a minute, you couldn't talk five minutes ago. As if that's going to make a difference. As if like- 
bringing it back in around 10.30. No one's going to notice. I, I, I recently watched a movie called Out of the Furnace that came out about 10 years ago with Christian Bale, where he plays like a steel worker in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. it's very similar. Like the first 10 minutes, he has a very good... I have relatives from Pittsburgh. And so I, like I, I can spot a Pittsburgh, like a Western Pennsylvania accent. He has a very good Western Pennsylvania accent. He hits wow. the O's and then it disappears. And you're like, how long did you spend... Christian, did you spend perfecting that accent only to like give it up like after two scenes or whatever? It was very disappointed because a little like Mayor of Easttown. I don't know if you watched that where like... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, those O's were remarkable. Kate Winslet doing a Philly, a Philly-ish accent to me is like, I, I can't even describe the level of uh, nostalgia local. I grew up in New Jersey, so that's an accent that I like. You know, I, the, people's moms had that accent. I was like, wow, I, I was moved to tears, not by anything that happened in the movie, just literally by the accent. And I, I was hoping for more from Christian Bale on this one. But, but uh, sadly, he gives up the Yinzer accent after about 20 minutes. Okay, that's a, an excellent recommendation. I'll, I'll throw a few more in. I, I, I have a real fondness for submarine movies, although I can't quite, like, I think it's true that there's never been a bad movie set exclusively on a train I don't think the same can quite be said for submarines, but I want mm. it to be true and it should be true. So I'll say this, even bad submarine movies are great, Yeah, um, is what I'm going to agree. say. And, you know, it's just like one of the things that's great about submarines is it just everything gets reduced to such intensities. And it's just like outside's bad, inside's good. Like, that's <laughs> it. Uh, yes. And then you always get the ping going, which is just like this beautiful disembodied heartbeat of like fear and terror. It's yeah. just, it's hard to miss. And I am including... By the way, like Hell Below, which is a submarine movie with Jimmy Durante in it, which is if you're thinking that can't be good, you're right. It's not good. It's based on a book called Pig Boats, um, but you gotta watch it. It's got Walter Houston in it. It's it's fantastic. It's 1933. It's a pre-code movie about wow. submarines in the Adriatic. Uh, okay, I do have to see this one. And then an actually better one is uh, one from '58 uh, called "Run Silent, Run Deep." Yeah, "Run Silent, Run Deep" is a to- is a so good. I love that movie. That's good. A, that's okay. A, that's such a great movie. I mean, it is. It's like a. It's a. It's a constant genre. There's every every decade has a has a set of submarine movies because, like you say, it's like has a dramatic container. Like it's so perfect. And who doesn't love a bunch of equipment just like a bunch of tech equipment in a set like everything's lit in reds and blues and like it just you know it's so i'm sure every it's like screenwriters having fun actors are having fun set designers having fun cinematographers having fun you get to save money yeah exactly you know what i I sort of i think it's supposed to be very bad but i I really want to see is um is an I don't know if you remember The Meg, the movie about the megalodon shark. I do. I was disappointed because I actually, I read and loved the books. uh, Mm. But I thought that the movie adaptation like totally lost the sense of fun. Well, so the new Meg movie called Meg 2, The Trench, is directed by this guy, Ben Wheatley, who is like a kind of an art house English director. And I don't quite know how he ended up directing Meg 2. But my understanding is He's not the guy who did Sightseers, is he? Yes, the guy who did, he did Sightseers and, oh no, yeah, Sightseers, Kill List, um, High Rise, uh, Free Fire, Field in England. A lot of like very weird, murdery That's English That's terrific. Movies. Well, oh, my and understanding In the is, Earth. I liked In yeah. the Earth. And my understanding is that it's not very good, Meg 2, but that it, as like a document of like a talented director trying to make a movie about a giant shark with Jason Statham that's funded almost entirely by Chinese film companies is like just you you kind of have to see it to understand movie making in 2023. That like the whole movie is about how uh, Western mining interests are like 
interrupting the sovereignty of like the South China Sea, basically. And I just love imagining like Ben Wheatley, this big bearded English guy who makes these like folk horror, these like strange, terrible folk horror movies, having to like direct Jason Statham and and like a bunch of and, like Wu Jing and a bunch of like top Chinese actors around a big weird submarine set. Um, this seems- is going to fund some amazing movies on Ben Wheatley's part. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely have to see this now. Uh, wow. Oh, yeah. And they brought back Paige Kennedy from The Meg One. So they're really <laughs> staying true to this series. Yeah, for, for fans of The Meg One. <laughs> yeah. You will not be disappointed. Okay, well, I really now just want to talk about like Ben Wheatley and submarines for the rest of the episode. but. We can't. Um, So I will read our last letter and then we will call it a day. But our last letter is a sort of like classic. So these are from the Dear Prudence mailbag. We ran out of questions last week um, and Janae very kindly sent some over. And this is like a classic question that I used to get when I was doing Dear Prudence and I get a lot less for this show. That's sort of like a person who's a landlord but kind of doesn't want to be. And I don't mean that like in a really dismissive way. Like somebody who has like one kind of shitty house from like a family member who died and is like, I'm not making money off of it. Uh, I'm kind of helping a relative. I'm kind of annoying a relative and she's kind of annoying me and I don't like it. And it just feels like if if nothing else, these letters teach us that normal, nice people hate being landlords. It's not <laughs> good. Um, there's a reason you're not having a good time. And so I want them to pay attention to that and get out. So that being said, the subject is not a monster. Always a great place to start. Five years ago, I inherited a very old house from a relative. At the same time, my aunt from the other side of my family was facing eviction again. She was there for me when my mother died. I let her rent the place, just paying enough to cover the bills and taxes. In five years, she's been late and or short on her rent payments every single month. And it's because her kids and grandkids are money-grubbing moochers. She can't pay the water bill because she's paying her son's water bill. She can't pay rent because she's paying her daughter's rent. The grandbabies need the big birthday bashes their parents can't afford. One of their damn dogs got out again, got hit by a car, and they can't afford the vet bill. Her eldest son is getting his expensive truck repossessed again and will lose his job. I've been in the red with her so long, I can't even calculate how much money she owes me. The house needs major repairs that I don't want to deal with. At this point, the land is worth more than the house is. I also plan to move away. I'm tired of the guilt, the conflict, and dealing with everyone. I told my aunt that I planned to sell the property and that she had six months to figure out a new living situation. She started to cry and said I couldn't take her home away from her. I told her the house needed too much work and I was tired of her taking my money and spending it on the cousins. Of course, everyone in my family thinks of me as a monster. I've already blocked my aunt's kids, but I don't want to burn every single bridge I had. I've already had it out with one uncle and told him to take his sister in if he was so concerned. And that's just where the letter ends. There's not a question. <laughs> I, I think maybe in some ways, like the letter writer is is clearly already doing what they plan on doing and just needed to like tell someone like, I'm fucking sick of these people. Can I just explain all the shit they've done that annoys me? Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. Like if you're really annoyed with your uh, relatives, it, it sounds frustrating and you're going to move away. That probably, I think that's probably a good idea to move away. Yeah. I think you put it perfectly when you said, before the letter, this is a person who is been placed in a position that they feel is impossible because they've inherited this property and uh, are trying to be a good person about it and not. But like part of the impossibility is this sense that they need to take the money from selling 
the home. And it's really hard, you know, like I have just as much of a sense of like how transformative, uh, you know, property values can be as anybody else. But like part of the trap here is the idea that like getting as much money out of the sale of this house as possible, like recouping your value from this thing that you've inherited is as important and imperative as everything else. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't actually even know that I feel comfortable. Like, I don't, do I have the courage of my convictions to tell this person, like the thing you should be doing is just selling this to your aunt for a nominal amount of money. Like, cause I'm, if this was like a friend telling me this at a bar, I, I would take my friend's side, even if I think that the sort of morally correct thing, I suppose, would be to just divest yourself of the property. Wow. And in the first letter, you congratulated the letter writer on having friends who had boundaries and would say no. (laughs) I'm a people pleaser, Danny. I'm sorry. This is why I can't give advice. This is why the only format in which I can give advice is on a podcast where I don't ever have to actually see the person who I'm I'm giving advice to. Five minutes in a submarine. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I'd be sucking up to everybody. (laughs) To be clear, I would not even get in when I would be so afraid and also boat sick. I'm I'm looking for clarity and guidance from you here, pal, because you're the you're you're the advice giver. I'm 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 the one who's just gonna take the coward's way out and agree with whatever my friend tells me over a drink. Yeah, I mean I, I think I, I have a sense with you that that's the fundamental sort of issue is like how do we think about this property? Because in some ways, letter writer, you got this because you happen to be related to a person who died. So you didn't earn it, you didn't purchase it yourself, you didn't go out and make it happen. It it fell into your lap. And in some ways it fell into your lap and you were like, do I understand this as a windfall and try to make money from it? Or do I try to understand this as an opportunity and help someone with it? Uh, Or do I think of this as like a chance to not lose money? Do I think this is a burden or an albatross? And it's been, I I think you've sort of tried to split the difference. But as is so often the case, when you try to split the difference between genuinely helping someone versus kind of trying to like recoup an investment you you don't really make enough money to recoup the investment and you don't really make the other person feel very helped. And that's kind of a tough situation to be in. So I don't know to what extent you, you, you say you're in the red with your relative. I don't know if that means just she owes you more money than you agreed to in the beginning or if like you have had to pay out of pocket for the like taxes on the land in a way you wouldn't have if you had been able to find a tenant who could reliably pay. But just again, like, for all that this genuinely does sound like a frustrating family dynamic, I think it is also true that like making money off of the fact that you happen to own a plot of land and other people need places to live is just like, it's a tough sell for for me to be very sympathetic towards. And so I guess I'll just say like, I don't think it's a good way to make money. Um, and I think you've kind of experienced that. So all of that is just to say, yeah, I, I wonder if, if you just want to get out of this, like with your hands clean and be done with it, and it sounds like the house isn't even that valuable anyways, if there's a way that you can just like write it over to your aunt for like a dollar, I, I think that would be nice. I think that would feel nicer when you're like dying and looking back over your life than like, oh, I ended up leaving it up on the market for like six months and finally like some, one of those We Buy Ugly Houses poster people like eventually bought it. Like if it's genuinely that valueless, I wonder if you actually would have gotten a lot more money out of somebody else. To me, it feels almost like possible that there's this sort of fantasy of like, oh, if I hadn't given in to my aunt, I could have made real money. But it actually doesn't sound like you were a very good landlord. You didn't really keep up the property. You didn't do the repairs. You don't want to do the repairs. And that's like the one thing a landlord supposedly does, right? Yeah. I mean, and I would say too, like, 
it seems really obvious that your feelings about your family are really, at this point, wrapped up in the house for understandable reasons, because now you have, like, the house is a is a mediating, you know, sort of, it's, it's right there in the middle of your relationship with your aunt. And increasingly, it sounds like between your relationship with the rest of your family. And if I were a honest, boundary-keeping friend talking to you, I might suggest that you think about how much of that sense of alienation from your family and the sort of callousness with which you feel about them is being motivated by a sense that you need to cut them off in order to make money from the house. Um, And, you know, again, like, everybody's got fucked up family situations. And I don't like, I don't know anything about this one. And it's very possible that that you you have a bunch of toxic family members who it will be healthier for you in the end to cut them out. But I could also see a situation where you see that you could make a hundred grand or whatever from selling this house. And in order to reach an emotionally stable place to do that, you need to justify it to yourself by telling a particular kind of story about your family and who they are. I just, something that I think is worth contemplating and and thinking about how like why you feel the need to present it like this to us whether it's the most accurate picture of the story which it very well may be or whether you know what what version of the story your aunt would tell or your uncle would tell uh, or whomever else yeah because I mean I was struck by that second paragraph even as the letter writer is really frustrated with their relatives the like most dismissive version of these events to me, this is like she can't pay the water bill because she's paying her son's water bill. She can't pay the rent because she's paying her daughter's rent. She paid for her grandkids to have a birthday party. One of their dogs got hit by a car. Like, that sound, that doesn't sound fake. Do you know what I mean? Like, they don't have the money. Like, it is difficult when your whole family is poor because that means everybody doesn't have money. And so just giving one person one thing doesn't fix the like core issue, which is, okay, well then there's seven people who are now trying to like stay afloat on the strength of this one thing. And I think to to me, it's like, okay, I guess maybe her eldest son has an expensive car he can't afford. That could be frustrating. Um, But like, if he's going to lose his job, that's not something to get mad at him about unless it's because he bought too expensive of a car, but it just, it, it felt, it sounds like he's got like you know, unstable employment. It sounds like one of their dogs got hit by a car. It sounds like they're in trouble. And that doesn't mean you have to endlessly fix everything for them or that you're not allowed to find them annoying sometimes. It's just like, usually in a case like this, someone will list all the like conspicuous personal spending, like, and they've got a cell phone or like, and her daughter had nice shoes on, but this was just like, and no one else can afford to pay the water bill. And it's just like, well, yeah, that sounds like a fucking emergency. Yeah, I mean, it is, it reads in in some ways, it reads like a list of sort of middle class tropes about poor people, about what they can afford. And when you are feeling like you have a better sense of how to, other people should be spending their money than they are, you know, again, it's worth asking yourself, well, is this, are they actually profligate? Are they actually spending their money badly? Uh, or uh, like Danny says, like, I mean, how expensive was the truck? The truck is necess- seems to be necessary for the eldest son's job. So what, you know, like, why shouldn't she be trying to step in to make sure he can keep his job so he can keep making money and potentially pay her back to pay you back? Um, I think that these are all like, again, without wanting to like question, you know, I'm sure that everything is sort of accurate as you're writing it, but it is, it's the kind of thing you want to stop and think about why you're picking this particular tack and like why this particular argument is appealing to you in terms of what you seem to have already decided to do. Yeah. And so again, 
like the the fundamental question of like, am I allowed to sell this house and move? Yes, absolutely. Um, giving your aunt six months notice was potentially the best you could do by her. Um, beyond that, I think the next best thing that you could do for her is to not harangue her or or get into arguments about this. And so I think to just say, I understand that this is difficult, but six months is the best that I can do. You'll have to figure that out. Just like leave it at that. Don't get into more arguments with people, but also don't expect people to thank you for this either. Um, and I think just really, I would encourage you, letter writer, to reframe some of this stuff. Like I've been in the red with her so long, I can't even calculate how many thousands of dollars she owes me. Um, like, okay. But on another, just from another angle, what I see here is like, for five years, I rented this house to a relative who I knew had no money. And I knew that what little money she had often had to go to her kids who also have no money. And that sometimes that includes having a party for a grandbaby because if you don't have enough money and every once in a while you want to celebrate, that doesn't like, that doesn't mean the birthday party is the reason they're not all rich, right? Like, oh, that if they have just wisely set all their money aside and never had a birthday party, they would all be investment bankers. Um, and like all of a sudden now, five years in, you're acting like, I can't believe that never changed. Mm -hmm. And you're, I think, looking for a reason to like justify your anger. And again, I'm not saying you have to own this house for the rest of your life so your aunt can live there. Um, I do think it would be a, a, a nice gesture to give it to her, but you don't have to. That doesn't mean you're like a shitty person. And if the best you can give her is six months notice, give her six months notice and then don't, don't get into an argument about it. But it feels a little bit like, sorry to like bring internet culture into it, but it's a little bit like a shocked Pikachu face of like, <laughs> oh, I can't believe that this entire family was not raised out of poverty by like cheap rent for one of them for five years. It's like, did you really think that was going to do it? Like, why did you suddenly expect that they were going to be able to magically produce money that they didn't have? Why are you mad at them for needing this thing that you know that they need? Again, none of that means you have to like them or that you have to like the way they handle their situations. But like, I don't know why you're acting new to this situation. You knew you were, she was getting evicted when you gave this living situation to her. I say gave, but like, again, you didn't give. And I just, I, I just don't want you to feel like, wow, I did something really, really noble for five years. And then I finally got tired of my good nature being prevailed upon. You got a house through no work of your own. You offered it at reduced rent to someone with very little money. That person with very little money didn't always have enough money to cover it. You didn't do anything about it. And then five years later, you decided to get mad when you said, you know, you have six months to clear out. I don't know what you expected. If you tell someone with no money that they're getting evicted, they're going to cry because they have no money and they're getting evicted. So I guess I ended a little madder than I started. I wanted to like be a little more peaceful. And now I'm a little like, what do you, what do you think? This is, to me, this is like, Max, have you read Sense and Sensibility? Yeah. You remember that scene early on where the half brother has like just come from the deathbed of his father where he's like, please take care of your sisters because I couldn't provide for them in my will. And he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to honor my father. And then within like an hour and a half, he's talked himself down to like, I'm going to send them a turkey at Christmas. And he really is proud of himself. And he's like, I'm a fucking do-gooder, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, you said already, this is like part of what the dynamic is here is that the letter writer has chosen, decided to be both relative and landlord in one and feel good about it. And has now reached a point where they have a choice, not to put it too sort of emotionally and bluntly, but they, you have a choice to be, continue being a relative or to be a landlord. And 
if you choose the latter one, which it seems like Letter Writer has already chosen, you can't expect your these people who are who are you are now treating solely as your tenants to thank you for it, to be happy with it. You know, if they were not, if it was not your aunt, if it was, if it was just a person you had been renting the house to, I mean, would you be writing this letter? Would you be feeling bad about it? I don't know. I mean, it's the, I suppose the letter writer is not specifically asking for sympathy, except in a kind of abstract, implicit way here. But at some point, I think this is like, if you want like the, the most sympathetic way I can put it is if you want to make the money from this property, the price of that is is evicting your aunt and potentially losing a bunch of family relationships. And if if that's worth it to you, then go ahead and do it. But like, that's the transaction. And it's not one that you should expect to be applauded for any more than you would be applauded for any other real estate transaction, essentially. Yeah, I, I think that's that's about where I would land. And so again, if anybody else wants to argue with you about it, I think just the line to say is, I can't afford to keep this house and I can't discuss it any further. That's it. But man, if if there's a way that you could just like hand it over to her and like let that be that. And if it wouldn't like ruin you, like if it's a question of like, it would be really nice to have a bunch of extra money as opposed to like I myself would be ruined. I would encourage you to take that route. But again, you don't have to. I, I think this was a messy situation. It was difficult to like know how to handle it at the beginning. I don't want to like fault you for how you entered into it. I just really want you to like have reasonable and realistic expectations instead of like, why isn't everyone thanking me for like evicting my aunt? Cause I'm finally standing up to her and it's like, you've got to understand that they're not going to see it that way. But none of this makes you like a really bad person uh, or like makes you responsible or the face of landlordism. Um, it's just, it's, it's, there, there's a reason that there's not like, I don't know, like a robust line of self-help books about how great it is to like rent out properties to your relatives, you know? Like people don't advise it generally because it's difficult uh, at best and it's almost never at best. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, let's hope that this letter, if somebody else finds themselves in a very similar situation, they can read this, they can remember this letter as a warning of what's to come uh, and make different or better choices about how they handle that kind of inheritance. Yeah, and maybe look into, I don't know, finding like a houseboat submarine situation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That would be. I would watch a movie about like a charming little houseboat in a submarine. What about, how about this, Danny? Sense and sensibility on a submarine. You mock me, Max. I, I would never. You mock me. I mean, it would be you, a couple submarines, I suppose. But you're, but I think you're disrespecting me. Um, <laughs> I will consider. It. I will take it under advisement. Max, thank you so much, uh, and uh, have a fabulous rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. For sure. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, 
Head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood, listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Presumably there's also some sort of tech fix to this letter writer. Like if you genuinely hate this, like there's probably a way if you just like Google the right search terms enough times, you will find ways to like disable the sending of images on your phone. And that might actually help. But I would say I would I would assign this to two categories. If one of this is just like people I don't know very well, I don't especially care to talk to. And I just don't really want to respond if they send me a picture of like Tom Cruise's face all weird. Fine. You don't have to. This is not like somebody's knocking at your door and you're pretending not to be home. Like you have my full permission to ignore that if it just feels like a content free conversation that you don't really want to be in. Um, It's also if these are some people that you're closer with and you just want to say like, hey, that kind of stuff kind of drives me nuts. You don't have to be on the same page as me, but like, would you mind not sending those to me? You can ask this lightheartedly. It does not have to be a big thing. And if it would really make you feel better, you should ask for it. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.